Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm very delighted to welcome back Omar Badar, who was a huge hit with all of you when we last chatted to him, I think nearer the beginning of this horror. Um, and there was quite a lot of demand to have you back, which is why we're talking to you, obviously, because of your huge insights. Um, your for those who can't remember, a brilliant Palestinian-American political analyst. And it's so important at the moment that we particularly, of course, elevate Palestinian voices, not least because most of the media are failing to do so. And if they do, they um, Palestinians are put in the dock um, and interrogated in a way that Israeli government spokespeople aren't. Um, so hello, Omar. Firstly, I hope you're well, given the circumstances as ever. Yeah, thank you. I'm really glad to be with you. I just want to start with, just before we 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 uh, began this interview there was a strike an israeli strike in lebanon uh, obviously the capital of uh, sorry beirut the capital of lebanon which has killed the deputy head of hamas saleh el alrori i'm just wondering what you think about the significance of that given the potential for an escalation into a regional conflict we've already seen obviously yemen the houthis the prospect of iran obviously there's hezbollah in Lebanon, what's your thoughts about what this could mean in terms of that potential for wide escalation? Yeah, I think this is an extremely significant step in the direction of a major escalation. Uh, it's not so much the individual target as the area in which the target had taken place. Um, Hezbollah is the single most powerful um, military group that is essentially affiliated with Iran uh, and is in as an adversary of Israel. And they have long made it a red line, a declared one, uh, based on the aftermath of the 2006 war, that if Israel ever touched either Beirut or even the southern suburb of Beirut, that Hezbollah would retaliate by targeting Tel Aviv. That was the um, an infamous speech that, that Nasrallah had given at the time, um, and it really raised the bar. And frankly, since Israel has not dared touch Beirut or, or its southern suburb, understanding that this would lead to a very significant escalation. And it looks like at this point, Israel is moving in that direction of kind of saying, you know, it's a game of chicken and they've pushed the next, um, you know, the next pawn up and saying your move. And it's an extremely dangerous situation because it sets us up for um, a chain of retaliations that very well could lead to a full-blown war. And a full-blown war between Hezbollah and Israel literally means thousands of dead Israelis and thousands of dead Lebanese. Um, this is, you know, in a weird way, we get accustomed to Palestinian death as horrific as and, and, and disturbing as that is. But there is almost an understanding that Palestinians are, um, you know, unable to defend themselves against a much more powerful adversary in Israel, an occupying force that is a military power, that, that is a nuclear power um, being backed by the world's superpower and Palestinians are largely a defenseless, defenseless population, you know, putting together um, whatever small weapons that they can get their hands on, but by no stretch able to inflict mass casualties um, in an all-out confrontation with Israel. That's not the case with Hezbollah. If 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 Israel starts 
engaging in massive bombings in Lebanon that lead to thousands. If, if they try to do in Lebanon what they're currently doing in Gaza, Hezbollah has the capacity to respond. And we're looking at a prospect of an extremely uh, significant regional escalation that will lead to untold levels of death and suffering. I mean, on that, I'm trying to work out what you think, where this kind of falls between hubris, a, a state which is just drunk on hubris, and triumphalism, opening up multiple fronts in a war is generally not regarded as, as, as a sensible military strategy. Um, or is it actually cockiness because they think they've got the back of the US and they maybe think in Lebanese society there isn't the appetite um, for the sort of horror which the IDF could unleash, for example, on the civilian population. What do you think? Where do you think it kind of falls in, in yeah. terms of the outcome? Look, there's two things. Um, one, in terms of Netanyahu's narrow political interests, um, he's now worried not just about his political survival. We've long talked about how an end to the massacres that he's committing in Gaza would effectively bring an end to his government as well. Um, he needs this conflict to go on. There's also a question of his personal legacy. Um, he's invested in desperate to spin victory out of um, the events that have unfolded um, starting on October 7th and since. And he can't achieve that victory. He's stuck in Gaza in a situation right now where uh, the prospect of defeating Hamas seems extremely unlikely as a military outcome. He's now moving in the direction of just punishing the civilian population for the sake of punishing the civilian population and trying to get a victory out of that in the direction of obliterating Gaza's ability to sustain life and pushing Palestinians out of Gaza through ethnic cleansing. And he's opening up another front, I think, in order to deflect attention from what is unfolding there, that you create chaos on a scale so massive that the ethnic cleansing of Gaza becomes small news by comparison when you look at the major configuration that, that's taking place in the region. Strategically also, there's this question of Israel restoring its deterrence. Israeli strategic leaders believe that the entire state survives on the concept of deterrence, on the concept of its adversaries being too frightened to ever touch it. And frankly, they're engaging in this genocidal campaign in Gaza, believing that this is what's going to restore deterrence and, and scare everybody else from ever daring um, you know, to cross any lines or, or to mess with Israel, so to speak. And Hezbollah has responded in a way that is very, very different. Every single day for the past three months, Hezbollah has been engaging in skirmishes on the border with the Israeli military. They've killed several um, Israeli soldiers over this period. So this supposed lesson of watching what we do in Gaza so you don't dare do anything, clearly Hezbollah is not intimidated. And now they're also upping the game a little bit and, and, and raising the cost, pushing the confrontation in a direction in a desperation to restore deterrence that frankly, I don't think can ever be restored. At this point, this sense of an Israeli military that is um, unbeatable and can carry out whatever it wants in the region and stomp whoever it wants and murder whoever it wants and flatten whatever cities it wants without a response is an era that is over. We are in a situation right now where people can respond. And in a, in a way, this was inevitable. You know, we always talk about what happened on October 7th as some kind of uh, tactical failure of intelligence or whatever. It's really a fundamental failure of common sense. Everybody who knows anything about anything with just elementary common sense understood that if you continue to behave in the region the way Israel behaves, if you continue to impo impose uh, illegal occupation, land theft, war crimes, mass killing, siege, suffocation, 
as a standard operating procedure, it's just the way that you behave. Eventually, people are going to respond, and we're going to it's going things are going to head in the direction of a confrontation. And I think this is exactly what we see currently um, unfolding. Rather than Israel understanding that true security and peace comes through normalizing relations with your neighbors and allowing them to have a future um, for their children, it's been nothing but brute force and the idea that you have to keep them down and stomp on them in order to ensure your security. Unfortunately, that's how you ensure endless death and violence. In terms of the media framing of this death and violence, I mean, we're now, I mean, nearly approaching three months in to this horror. And, you know, you've got on the one hand, the right-wing media who are just an extension of the comms department of the IDF. And then in the liberal media, there's this live debate. You know, this is a war on Hamas, but is it proportionate or not? Maybe they're going too far. Let's agree to disagree. Either opinion's valid. Whilst you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, unless he went on national television with a big neon sign over his head saying, we're committing war crimes, ha, ha, ha. I don't really think he could be less subtle about it, to be honest. Yeah. So I'm just wondering what you think about the media framing um, versus the reality. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this is not too far from the description of effectively what is happening. It is borderline we're committing war crimes, ha, ha, ha. That is, the, the, when you look at the statements of Israeli officials from the beginning of this, talking about starving all of Gaza and denying them water and electricity, they're quite open about the fact that they're engaged in a mass campaign that is targeting civilians. When you look at the documents that were revealed in that 972 magazine uh, investigation, showing that the strategy is to um, essentially obliterate civil society as a way to create shock and despair among the civilian population. When you look at investigation after investigation showing that Israel designated Syrian areas as safe zones and then proceeded to drop massive bombs on those areas where civilians were fleeing, there's only one conclusion, starting with the stated um, intent of Israeli leaders and ending with just watching what their policy is. It is targeting civilians. It is the civilian population in Gaza are the intended targets of Israel's war. So anybody who tells you that Israel is engaged in a war against Hamas is effectively lying to you. They are engaged in a war against the civilian population in Gaza, knowing, again, that this war against Hamas is not going well at all. Um, when you look at Hamas's ability to actually, you know, exact many casualties among the Israeli military that is present in the Gaza Strip, things are not going well for the Israeli military on the Hamas war front but they want to achieve victory at the expense of the civilian population. They want to spin a victory out of a defeat by simply obliterating Gaza and making it unlivable and forcing the population to basically move out. Again, this is extremely openly stated on virtually every single Israeli media outlet where officials are interviewed. Everybody's openly talking about the need to ethnically cleanse Gaza, something you just would never know looking at American media and I imagine Western media more broadly, it's just not part of the conversation. We're pretending there is this bizarre pretense as if, as you know, as if the media itself is gaslighting us, saying, don't look at what Israel is doing. Don't believe what their leaders are saying. This is just a war against Hamas in which Palestinians are accidentally killed. And we can debate this proportionality question when the reality is very, very different. And anybody who is paying attention closely enough can actually see that this is a war on the Palestinian civilian population that is at minimum, a war of massacres and ethnic cleansing. And frankly, you couldn't even describe it as a war of genocide. I mean, on that, do you think, if, you know, in, in a sense, to challenge even some who very much stand with the Palestinian people, there's not been a kind of shift 
in accordance with reality in that many will say, well, this is a horrific campaign and they just don't care about civilian casualties. But actually, if you look at the actual facts where you get just entire bloodlines wiped off the face of the earth, where, I mean, they kept, Israel kept making this constant comparison with the war on ISIS. Um, and experts on that went and said, well, firstly, I mean, they were careless with killing civilians there. But the, there is a far, 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 far higher level of civilian deaths um, in this campaign. And, and they've been various with, with other campaigns, far more damaged than, for example, proportionately than, say, the Allied bombing of Germany in World mm -hmm. War II in a much, much, much shorter space of time. Yeah. To say this isn't careless, this is deliberate killing of civilians um, to achieve a political get goal, which is terrorism, obviously. Exactly. That is the, the textbook definition of terrorism. And by that definition, frankly, it is it sounds inflammatory to people who are not used to hearing it, but it is true that this is not a new policy for, for Israel. I mean, the scale of it is new. They've never engaged in it on a scale that large, but their policy has always been the targeting of civilian populations. That goes back for a very, very long time. Back in the 2006 war with Lebanon, now that we're looking at a prospect of another major confrontation with Lebanon, it's worth bringing up. Israel dropped more than a million cluster bombs all over villages throughout the south of Lebanon, prompting an Israeli commander at the time to say, it was quoted in Haaretz, saying what we did was insane and monstrous. Those are the, those are the words of the people who are engaging in that violence. It's basically confessions for these atrocities that they've committed. And that seems to be the only way Israel knows how to operate, frankly. I mean, they have a sophisticated... Um, special ops and, and Mossad agency that can carry out targeted assassinations here and there. But there isn't much of a military force beyond that that is capable of anything beyond an air force that can just decimate civilian areas. That is effectively the primary method through which they wage warfare. And it's always been. Um, every time they've gone in on the ground, things have not worked out for them very well. Um, we're witnessing that in Gaza right now. We witnessed that in 2006 in Lebanon as well. They don't do well in combat on the ground. They're not prepared for a serious um, fight. And that's why they try to basically minimize their own casualties and rely on their air superiority just by devastating um, civilian populations as a way of exacting punishment for anybody who dares to challenge their occupation on apartheid. That is the, the, the way that they operate. And it really... Is, is worth pausing and, and, and thinking about for a minute whenever we talk about the starting point of this conflict or who started this and what happened. The starting point is an Israeli proposition to Palestinians that says, you will live under the boot of occupation forever without human rights, without the right to land. We can come and take whatever we want from you at any time we want. And you simply have no freedom. And you either accept this or you can leave. And anybody who chooses to fight back in any capacity then you will be met with massacres on a scale that you can't imagine. That is the Israeli proposition. So even when you look back, you know, I've had a, a media conversation actually a little bit earlier of somebody bringing up that comparison with um, Dresden, Germany, Japan, you know, there were massive campaigns, but things ended up for the better, so to speak, um, at, at the end of it, that even though atrocities were committed, the final outcome is Japan and, and Germany are thriving now. And maybe that's a prospect for, um, for Gaza. And, I don't accept that logic entirely. I think these atrocities are obviously not justified no matter what, but that's not Israel's prospect at the end of this. Israel is engaging in this violence to say, you have to live under the boot of our occupation forever. And the goal of this military campaign is to make you, to make you surrender to that vision in which you have no rights as long as you live 
in the Palestinian territories. And that's really untenable. And for those who think we're wearing tinfoil hats here, there was a doctrine called the Daher Doctrine, uh, which, as you referred to, was coined in the 2006 war in Lebanon. And it was outlined by the former IDF chief of staff, uh, Gadi uh, Atzincott, um, which, which is you basically bomb civilian areas and kill civilians in order to get them to put pressure on Hezbollah or, for example, uh, Hamas. So it's, you know, and, and there was um, 972 Mag in Israel had uh, an Israeli-Palestinian magazine, had an investigation relying on military sources who made it clear that was clearly an action in, in Hamas. Uh, sorry, in Gaza. So I think it's really important to talk about. And just in terms of something else, in terms of, I guess, I mean, we're talking about hubris again, partly. I mean, in terms of just impunity, because normally when states engage in massive war crimes, they go to great, great lengths to cover them up. Huge lengths. Yeah. They gaslight people. They cover things up. You can look at the Balkans as a good example of that. You know, they weren't going around going, again, look at all the war crimes we're committing. They denied that and completely, in fact, over and over again. Um, but, I mean, in the moment, you know, it's not just that Israel aren't trying to cover up their war crimes, where you have genocidal language on a daily basis, basically, coming from Israeli mil um, leaders and officials. This is the first war ever, I, as far as I can see, where an army is serving up war crimes as online fodder for public entertainment. So, for example, I just looked today as another... There's a, I mean, people talk about... The tick, young people are being radicalized by TikTok. I think a lot of people are being radicalized by IDF content being posted on TikTok and not in a good way for Israel. So, for example, just a bunch of IDF uh, soldiers cackling as they, in, in a Palestinian home, trashing around in it, um, and then they set it on fire. They're not pretending. They're not hiding their faces as they commit a war crime. You've burned down a civilian structure like that. You, that's a war crime. You don't need, it's not alleged, it just is. But they're just, it's a joke. And yeah. that only happens if you think, you're just going to get away with anything. Otherwise, you would never do that. Yeah. And the, the, the problem is they're not wrong. I mean, the track record has been them getting away with everything. And so there's every reason for them to think in that direction. And it's partly due to American policy. American policy has always been that Israel is a country that is above the law and above rules, and they can do whatever they want without accountability. That is official Israel, American policy. In terms of any country that receives military funding from the US, there are rules on how you use that that military equipment and and how you spend it and this and that in the case of israel it just comes with no strings attached it's just unconditional funding and when you had during the last presidential election uh people on the democratic side like bernie sanders and, and elizabeth warren floating the idea of conditioning military funding for israel joe biden was incensed and said funding for israel should never can never be conditioned that this is basically it has to be military weapons without conditions that is biden's official policy same with one veto after another at the United Nations to shield Israel from any accountability. And we're seeing it again in terms of the International Criminal Court. There's always significant US pressure that, that comes to bear on any international institution that tries to hold Israel accountable for anything. And that has actually allowed Israel to drift in a more and more extreme direction um, where, I mean, it's honestly quite tragic that young people in Israel are far more anti-Palestinian that public opinion in Israel right now thinks that genocidal bombing of, and destruction of Gaza doesn't go far enough, that what the Israeli public actually wants is even more devastation. They don't think it's, it's happening at a big enough scale. This is not a good situation by any stretch. And it comes, it's basic human psychology. Anybody who can behave in complete and total impunity without accountability of any sort is bound to behave in ways that are bad. And this is, I think, what we're witnessing in a 
um, in a country that has long learned that it is a country that is above the rules and no matter what happens, the protection of the United States is, is at hand. Um, it is pushing things in an extremely bleak and ugly direction. And it tells you that this, self, this correction, course correction cannot happen internally on its own, that you're going to need unbearable external pressure to come, uh, to come down in order to force Israel to stop abusing Palestinians and insisting on a relationship of dominance over them. Um, the, the videos that you described, I mean, it's a dime a dozen. You see it just constantly. It's an endless stream of brutality and sadism and abuse uh, and mockery of Palestinian suffering that is playing on a loop. And again, you don't see any of it on, on Western media, which is part of the reason why the shift in public opinion here is slow. So what's, what's remarkable is that in spite of the American government's complicity and mainstream media institutions' complicity um, in whitewashing Israel's atrocities, people are still waking up. Public opinion in the U.S. is still moving in the right direction. People understand that supporting Israeli policies um, is morally wrong. They see it through social media, and it's a testament to how depraved the behavior of these soldiers is on video that even mainstream media institutions and, and the U.S. government can no longer uh, play enough of a, of a defense on it to prevent the American public from actually seeing how bad it is and, and the need for a fundamental change in American policy. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Just before I ask you finally about U.S. politics and, and, and all of this, the partial withdrawal of IDF forces, I mean, that partly has been touted as kind of onto the, you know, we're achieving our goals. We don't need all these troops in anymore. I mean, there's, there's mention of it in the context of the Israeli economy, which is struggling. And that, so, I mean, there has been that kind of confession, I suppose, that this is having an impact on the Israeli economy and therefore we need to take them home. But some might go, well, this just shows they are winning, they're succeeding, they're, they're achieving their military goals. How would you read it? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the stated military goal is the defeat of Hamas militarily. And just a day ago, they fired an unprecedented number of rockets on into Israeli cities. So clearly there has not been a military achievement 
um, for Israel on the ground. I think they're coming to the realization that there can't be uh, a military achievement against Hamas. And this is, again, it's if the goal, if the real goal is simply to destroy Gaza, they don't need Israeli soldiers on the ground to do that. They can afford to withdraw, you know, if anything, you're reducing Hamas's capacity to have many targets present on the ground in Gaza. And you can just withdraw more troops, minimize your damage. And in the meantime, just continue this monstrous policy of mass devastation from the sky and this mass killing taking place and the mass suffocation and starvation and siege that is imposed on Gaza from the outside. You don't need much more from that to pursue your actual real goals, which is to make Gaza unlivable for its Palestinian population and to force them uh, to move through a campaign of forced ethnic cleansing. You don't need troops on the ground for that. And um, yeah, I, I don't see this shift as any strategic victory for Israel by any stretch of the imagination. It's just a realization that you can do your worst without having to put people in danger and put them on the ground. And that is the policy really that Israel has in Gaza. <clears throat> I will mention just one thing on um, the regional escalation that's taking place in the Red Sea with the Houthis. And another point that I think is, is important to consider the American double standard on. For a very, very long time, Israel had a policy of besieging Gaza um, long before October 7th. It's been, been going on for uh, 17 years, this blockade on Gaza. And early on during the blockade, there was a situation in which potato chips and sodas and cookies and all kinds of different foods were not allowed into Gaza because of Israel's blockade. And when a humanitarian ship, uh, the Turkish flotilla, tried to deliver food aid to Gaza to break Israel's unlawful blockade, um, Israeli commandos boarded that ship and killed nine people on board, including an American citizen. And the American response was nowhere to be seen. There was no Navy being mobilized. Um, that was just acceptable for Israel to behave in that way, to impose blockades and seas around other people's territory and to use murderous violence against civilian ships that tried to deliver food and break that blockade. And yet, when the Houthis in Yemen try to impose a blockade on Israel, while Israel is in the midst of committing a genocide in Gaza, if there was ever a justification for imposing a blockade, you'd think that would have to be one. We have a situation in which the U.S. military mobilizes and is willing to carry out lethal force in order to make sure that um, the Houthis are not able to block ships that are uh, bound to or from Israel. And... Some people try to describe the U.S. as, you know, trying to play the world police. Police, at least, are under the pretense that they're trying to enforce the rules equally on everyone. What the U.S. is doing is behaving as the regional bully that says our friends get to impose blockades and use murderous violence. But anybody who's not on our team doesn't get to do it. And if you do, you're going to receive the wrath of the U.S. US military. That is the U.S. dynamic um, in the region. And it's just the billionth example of American hypocrisy that is leading to significant unpopularity in the region and a situation in which, again, we're doing all of this in the name of Israeli security, but using that level of violence and oppression and, and hypocrisy produces significant resentment that I think is going to breed violence for a very, very long time. And it's having the exact opposite of the intended effect of creating actually less security um, in the region, including for Israel itself. Amen. And last question I want to put to you, the first guest we're speaking to in 2024, and you're a Palestinian-American. It's 2024 election year in the United States. 
Um, the polling suggests that Joe Biden's um, ratings polling is is collapsing. It's actually collapsing, for example, amongst younger voters. Uh, that isn't because of some massive swing of enthusiasm towards Donald Trump. It's younger people who they're not going to vote or they'll go for a third party candidate, that kind of thing. Um, I'm just wondering how you think this could play out. I mean, traditionally, the the kind of narrative was, well, actually, foreign policy doesn't really have a big impact on how people vote. I'm just wondering, just as a as an American analyst as well, um, what your thoughts are in terms of the impacts this is having on voting and what this could actually mean for an election now, which is only 10 months away. Yeah. Now, honestly, the, the prospect of, of what happens in this election is extremely bleak. Um, Don, I mean, you have Joe Biden, who is enabling this genocide, not, not only enabling, right? The demand is not for Biden to just do something to stop this. The demand is simply to stop participating in it. And what Biden is doing is not just insisting on continuing U.S. participation in this, but actually bending the rules and going around the American Congress in order to ship expedite weapons shipments to the Israeli military to carry out the slaughter. So the, the level of complicity is extremely high, and it does turn off younger voters. It is traditionally correct to say that American voters are not particularly concerned with American foreign policy and that both administrations behave more or less the same anyway, so it doesn't really matter that much. We have a new generation that is much more globally minded, much more conscious, conscious of America's foreign policy sins and understands that even though it was generally true to describe both parties as, as equally bad on foreign policy, something should have changed in the midst of genocidal violence on the scale that we're witnessing. This was supposed to be a moment, you know, Israel has always wanted to drive Palestinians off of their land. You know, they, they um, uh, Israeli politicians have many years um, been talking about this idea that the Nakba was a job uh, incomplete and that we have to push Palestinians out. We understood that they could not do it because the world would not tolerate it. And surely that U.S. unconditional support would be at risk if they attempted something so horrific. And now we're witnessing that they are pushing in that direction. You know, violence is escalating significantly in, in the West Bank, too, but also the genocide of violence in Gaza. That should have been the wake-up call for the U.S. administration to say, listen, we support Israel, but this is a step too far. And Biden has proven completely incapable of, of mustering any integrity or decency or moral courage to stand up and say enough is enough. Um, and that does have very significant impact on young voters and people who don't want to be complicit in, in this kind of policy. Now, there is no pretense that any Republican is better. Frankly, every Republican is worse on nearly every issue, and particularly this one. Um, Nikki Haley is far more, you know, like right now it seems to be either Donald Trump or if for whatever reason something happens and and, and he's unable to clinch the, the Republican nomination, Nikki Haley seems to be poised as, as the person to take his, his spot. And both of them are extremely anti-Palestinian um, in the case of Nikki Haley, even arguably more hawkish and more likely to engage in even greater, get the U.S. involved in even greater violence. And so we're looking at a set of options where the genocide enabler is the good guy. And from there, it only gets worse. It's a really, really terrifying prospect for this election. It's not, you know, I personally have always been an advocate of voting for the lesser of two evils, accepting the reality that we have to fight for a, a more progressive country, uh, more moral positions in terms of policy, but you do that through advocacy every other day, except on election day, you have to vote for the lesser of two evils to minimize harm. 
I honestly don't think I can bring myself to do that this time. I cannot push the button that shows the name of Joe Biden, knowing that many of my friends have lost their children and their mothers and their fathers and their cousins due to this particular individual's unwillingness to show even the least bit of moral courage and objecting to this kind of genocidal violence. So things are looking quite ugly. And given the fact that, you know, nobody's switching from, from Joe Biden to vote for the Republicans, but given how bad Joe Biden is, the fear is there's going to be such significant depression in uh, the turnout for the Democratic side that we are looking at the possibility of Donald Trump returning to power with terrifying consequences, not just for Palestine, but for the United States itself and for the future of our children in this country. Um, yeah, it's a it's an extremely, extremely bleak outlook. And we're just, you know, hoping against reality that something would change that would give us something positive to vote for. And it, it just it doesn't look like it's it's a possibility at this point. And the, the Democratic <clears throat> Party establishment have a choice then, so there's a strategy. They can listen to those voters and go, look, we can hear where you're coming from and we're listening and we're going to do something about it, we promise. Or how dare you, you're a disgrace, we're moral disgrace, you've got to vote for us. Just because we're backing war crimes, if you vote for Donald Trump, you're a monster, sorry, let Donald Trump in, you're a monster. How dare you, how dare you, how dare you? Which yeah, strategy that, do you think they'll go through, go, go for just based on historical precedent? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's the, I, I, you're really putting your finger exactly on the problem, is that we have a discourse in which People who are saying they can't bring themselves to vote for Joe Biden are the ones being blamed for the prospect of bringing Trump back, as opposed to the guy who's enabling genocide and insisting on defending it at every corner, insisting on repeating Israeli lies. I mean, that's also critical. It's it's going above and beyond anything that is ever expected of an American president on this front, that when the Israeli government lies and says dozens of babies were beheaded by Hamas, and they say that the military headquarters is under this hospital, Subsequent investigations proved they were lying. But when Joe Biden is asked about these things, he says, yeah, no, I've seen the photos of the babies and I saw the intelligence about the Hamas headquarters underneath the hospital. He's just repeating lies in defense of this monstrous apartheid government. And that is just unforgivable. I, I, it's it's mind boggling that the people who are most terrified of the of a return of Donald Trump, and I count myself among them, I definitely do not see Donald Trump as president of the United States. I think that would be an extremely dangerous thing for, for the world and the country. Yet the rage about that ought to be directed right now at a sitting president who is willing to lie and work around the rules in order to support a genocidal campaign against the civilian population. That is where the blame ought to be lied. And at the end of the day, if Joe Biden does lose this election, he will have absolutely nobody to blame except for himself. And the team around him who are not adequately pushing him to change course will also have nobody to blame but themselves. We have a, a, a moral failure of, of catastrophic proportions right now taking place. And I, I genuinely worry about what that will mean for the future of this country. As I often say, at the end of many of these interviews, bleak, but better to be um, honest than so false hope always. But Omar, that was brilliant stuff as ever. Honestly, really, really appreciate that. Um, for those watching or listening, do share this. Do press like, subscribe. But Omar, as I really, really appreciate having your voice. You're so important right now. So thank you so much. And, and honestly, Owen, I just have to say that your particular coverage has been a breath of fresh air in an environment in which it's very difficult to get um, really informed perspectives and facts out there about what is unfolding. And I think that you're doing an incredible service to drive us towards a better world in which people are informed and can make better decisions about the future of this world.
Well, from you, that makes a huge amount. But I'd, I'd never forgive myself if I didn't use my platform like this. What would be the point? Um, but the most important thing with my platform is I offer the, uh, the megaphone to people like yourself. So, But thank you so much. It's so kind of you. And do make sure you follow Omar Badar on social media, follow his work, his comments, always insightful stuff. Thank you so much. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.